The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a The orphan train started in 1854 and lasted for about 75 years. And it was started by the, the Children's Aid Association in New York City under the leadership of Charles Loring Brace. And what we're told about it is they had all of these orphans, um, the New York Juvenile Asylum and a number of other orphanages and places an explosion of children and that they wanted to experiment with this program and get them out to places that were developing. And so they started this program where they would put children on these trains. And, you know, the bottom line is they were being shipped off to goodness knows where. I, I would find the 12 tribes, people that identified as the 12 tribes in India, in Madagascar, in Pakistan, mm. Afghanistan. And I've done some more research into that. And I think I think that was part of this, how this civilization was laid out. You know, so I've talked about sacred geometry and the flower of life. And I think communities were set up the same way. And each tribe occupied a, a different spot on the circle. Like the zodiac, twelve signs. Exactly, and that 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 was a pattern that was repeated around the world.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, here with another fresh episode. Wow, today, really, my head is spinning after reviewing with Michelle Gibson, somebody who I've heard a lot about in the past year, many people recommending that we get her on Tinfall Hat, get her on this show. Uh, she has done Tinfall Hat, and now she has done the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and I was happy to have her. It was a very interesting conversation. Like I introduced her, she seems to be on the forefront of the Tartaria topic, uh, someone who's pretty organized and I found the conversation interesting I gotta admit the more I learn about Tartaria the more skeptical I get but I certainly am fascinated and super interested so yeah maybe you might hear a little bit of that skepticism in this conversation but I will say I did just find a really old book that details a Vinland map and a document called the Tartar relation and that's just the tip of it folks i've been looking into a lot more than that there's this 14th century document that i found called the practica della mercatura and that is a 14th century trading guide apparently just got a text message sorry about that this trading guide here Details trades with the Tartarians. Very interesting stuff. There's also some interesting information about a place called Cathay, which was supposedly North China, but there is a difference in those times between North China and South China, and I found that interesting. Maybe there's some connections there, but it seems like that whole side of Asia is very mysterious. I find it very interesting that that's where the land bridge is and i definitely think there's a cultural connection in some way between north america and that part of north east asia yeah very fascinating stuff really just taking a armchair amateur approach a heavy dose of speculation to give you that statement but it's uh, fuel for your fire and i encourage you to Approach the Tartaria topic with a level of discernment and uh, skepticism, but, you know, in good fun, you know, because we don't need to uh, rain on anyone's parade. I think some people have wealths of knowledge, and just because you may not agree with the point they're making doesn't mean that they're not knowledgeable. And that wasn't the case today. I definitely found uh, a lot of agreement in Michelle Gibson, and she is certainly a wealth of knowledge. So, folks, you know what to do. Show us some love on Patreon, patreon.com slash MFTIC. That's where you can get the video for this episode. We're also going to put it on Rockfin, so go and subscribe over on Rockfin. Show us some love there. But, yeah, Michelle, as you might know, from listening showed us a fair amount of visual material definitely worth your while to check that out you also get to look at my pretty face while you listen to the conversation me personally more of an audio guy but here we are in the uh 
in the new content creating world. We're doing audio, we're doing video, we're doing it all. So join us on the Patreon and leave us a message. Tell us what you think. You can go over to podinbox.com slash MFTIC. Make sure the MFTIC is in all capital letters for some reason. And, uh, and leave us a voicemail. I'd love to hear from you. We have a voicemail from somebody, and we're going to play it right now. All right. This is a message from Zach D. Shout out to Zach D. Thank you for leaving us a message. And thank you for listening to the My Family Fix Some Crazy podcast. Here we go. Let's check out Zach D.'s message. Mark Palmer, my name is Zach. I listen to your podcast. I used to have a job like you where I drove all day long and I could listen to podcasts like eight, 10 hours a day. It was about a nine year period where that's all I did. I listened to podcasts all day long, every day. Lots of conspiracy stuff, lots of Rogan, lots of everything really. But what I was getting at is I got into conspiracies really early back in the 90s. I'm 42 years old. And uh, you guys were talking about Jedi mind tricks a minute ago on your latest episode. And in 1994-ish, one of the first cassette tapes I ever had was an album by a hip-hop artist called J-Ru, J-E-R-U, The Damaja, J-Ru The Damaja. And he was a rapper out of Brooklyn, New York. And his album I had was called The Sun Rises in the East. And this was like 94, 95. I think the album is for a couple years before that, but that's when I had it. And I love that album. And it's kind of cheesy if you listen back to it, but there's a couple of songs uh, a song called Ain't the Devil Happy, if you listen to that, he's talking about vibration and sound and matter. And he's talking about all kinds of stuff, like the way the system is corrupted by devils and and cannibalism and some really kind of ahead of its time stuff. Nobody was talking about that back then. Anyways, if you look at the album cover for that album, um, The Sun Rises in the East, he is posing in front of the Twin Towers and one of the Twin Towers is on fire. Now, this is, you know, years and years before 9-11. And I was already into conspiracy stuff well before 9-11. And so when that event happened, I was like, oh, my God. You know, the first thing I, you know, I thought, oh, my God, that album cover that was like burned into my memory because that was my first cassette tape I listened to until I wore it out as a kid. Um, so that was kind of my perspective from before 9-11 going through that all the way to the current day. But I didn't know if you'd ever heard that album or seen that album cover, but you should at least look it up. And take a look at that and also listen to some of the tracks some of the tracks are terrible on that album but there's a couple that are even relevant today as to what's going on wow right on yeah man thank you zach d for uh bringing that back because i definitely remember finding jeru the damager back in the day listening to all kinds of underground rap seems like uh the sun rises in the east was yeah wow 1994 and you see these towers burning behind him <laughs> really crazy and you and even wow in uh, in the song in the album one two three four five six seven of course song number seven is called you can't stop the prophet wow so uh thank you for bringing that to my attention zach i did not realize that connection uh until now and yeah like i said underground rap is a a big part of who i was and and who i've become definitely opened my mind to a lot of information that i had never fathomed from my traditional schooling so to speak but yeah groups like army of the pharaohs jedi mind tricks huge in my book dilated peoples let's see i got the 
Spotify open right now to one of my old playlists. It's been so long since I've listened to this music uh, thoroughly. I just kind of listen to podcasts lately, but yeah, I mean, Army of the Pharaohs is a super group, so that says it all right there. There's a bunch of people that you can listen to uh, through that group, but yes, yeah, Self-Titled and Apathy, uh, I've seen them live in West Haven, uh, and yeah, it's uh, <laughs> Cannabis, big one, Diabolic, another big one, East Coast Avengers, a Variation, uh, DC the Mini Alien, uh, <clears throat> 7L, Esoteric, Ill Bill, Aesop Rock, that's another big one, I love Aesop Rock. But yeah, man, thank you for bringing me back. And folks, if you want to leave a message, go over to podinbox.com slash MFTIC in all capital letters. Meanwhile, we got a big one for you today, folks. Michelle Gibson. You've been waiting. You've been asking about her. Enjoy this conversation with Michelle Gibson. We got into the orphan train. We got into Tartaria. I asked her some tough questions. At least I thought they were tough. I, I had the gloves on, though, folks. And, yeah, Michelle was great. She really had a lot of interesting, interesting information to share with us. So, yeah, folks, thank you so much and enjoy this conversation with Michelle Gibson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, and with me today is my co-host, Tara. Tara, how are you? I'm feeling pretty good today. Right on. And with us for the first time is a very special guest. You know her as a, a leading speaker in the, in the topic of Tartaria and all things alternative history, and I'm absolutely fascinated, and it's a pleasure to have her here today. Michelle Gibson, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you. Uh, right thank on. you both. So you know, it, it, it's funny to hear me describe that way because I'm really a motivated, ordinary person that got a lot of information that I followed up on and, and has, I've just stuck with it. And mm. the deeper well, how I go did you with come it, upon the, the information, out. where did this start, Michelle, if you will take us back to maybe the first, uh, moment where you're like, hold on, this doesn't add up with what I've been taught. In the recent past, in 2016, I things started to come together for me. And I had been interested in hidden history and alternative history my whole life. I was always interested in the stuff that there wasn't any information on or very little. You get a taste of it with in search of on TV and unsolved mm -hmm. mysteries. When I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, I was born in 63. So, you know, sometime in that time, Arthur Street Clark's Mysterious World and, you know, programs where they were talking about these things. It's like, it's, I want to hear more about this. And there just wasn't anything available until the internet came along. Mm. But I read, I read books that I could get my hands on through the years. And uh, I did read Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock in around 2007 and some other alternative researchers. And it was around that same time I learned about sacred geometry 
I attended a Flower of Life workshop that was based on the work of John Below Melchizedek. And had I not learned about sacred geometry, I, I wouldn't be sitting here today mm. because that really formed the basis of what I uncovered. And it also, his work also planted the seed in my mind that there was a, a worldwide planetary grid system mm. that was a, a physical counterpart to one that is etheric. And I, when I heard that, you know, he's talking about 82,000 sites around the world that are connected with this grid. I'm thinking, well, that sounds great, but who could have done that? And that was around 2010. He put out a video called Birth of a New Humanity. And he talked about things like that. And it's like, I was, you know, really into his work and super interested in it and learning about the awakening and ascension and, and so on and so forth. And I would watch programs. I don't know if you've heard of a conference called Megalithomania. No. Which is, you can find their website, megalithomania.co.uk or vice versa. I'm not sure which the order of the last two are. A lot of earth energy researchers gave great presentations. And you mentioned Glenn Kreisberg right before we started. And he was one of the presenters that I watched sometime around I want to say 2012, 2013, and he was talking about alignments in the state of New York. Mm, that's so yeah, I that's, have heard of him. That's awesome because we we were just synchronistically driving through Woodstock just thinking, oh, let's go check out this place. It's kind of infamous for this sort of thing, feeling out the vibes. And we found his book there of all places because it's you know really particular to that area the Catskill Mountains and and all of the different stone mounds that are across the northeast but yeah it's fascinating and he covers how the serpent mound is connected to the Draco constellation which is another really fascinating point now this is maybe going a little too far ahead but I want to just state this you know, you mentioned uh, in a previous interview the sort of tetrahedral pattern, the tetrahedron mm -hmm. pattern that you found with the ley lines. Let's get into let's get into that because I've seen that same sort of arrangement in a book by Michael Boydner, I think, in his book Pie in the Sky, where he shows how the the Irish Stonehenge and megalithic sort of features up there in Ireland in the UK, they are creating that exact same shape. If I may go ahead and if you don't mind me sharing my screen, I'll show yeah, you a ahead. cleaner copy of what I have in <laughs> tattered copy here. Because <laughs> this was my own personal starting point. And, and this is how I really got into what I'm doing now. But it was a convergence of things. It was a lot of study over a lot of years the things I, I read that I was attracted to, videos that I watched, like the one about Glenn Kreisberg and others, you know, the idea of Angkor Wat in Cambodia also being a mirror of the constellation Draco, which is something that Graham Hancock talks about. He's got a book called Heaven's Mirror. But my original finding was this, and I moved to Oklahoma from Fairbanks, Alaska in 2012 to help with my mom. And by that time, I was spiritually awakened to unity consciousness and, you know, the whole idea that we're all, all a 
hologram of source and we're all connected and the ascension's on the way and then between 2012 and 2016 i i learned how dark the dark was and the kind of world that we're living in and, and what we're facing you know the challenges that we're facing because of what's taken place here and i'll get into that when i talk about my work but i had been traveling with friends of mine you know like i said i already knew about sacred geometry traveling around oklahoma and arkansas louisiana and so one of the friends i went traveling with gave me this map and i had it sitting on a bulletin board next to my dining room table and i started noticing cities lining up in lines and that's what these lighter lines are here and then i found this line here going from Edmonton, Alberta to Ottawa in Ontario. And then I found this line going through these cities here. I knew the dimensions of the start of the tetrahedron. So I brought this up here and then I found this one. Wow. So and I don't mean to stop you and interrupt, but that line you just pointed out going from Edmonton to Ottawa, I mean, if it's not exactly the Hamanasset line, it's pretty damn near close and it's going in the same direction. That that little top of Wisconsin there that goes up into Lake Superior, I believe it is. It's called the Kiniwa Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And that's where Glenn Kreisberg draws his Hamanasset line from there to the Montauk Point in Long Island. But it's like right, you know, along that same exact line. I'm I'm shocked right now to see that. That's really cool. I hadn't seen that before just now. And I just did an in-depth study on Keweenaw Peninsula based on somebody's suggestion that I look into it. And there's things that are there that just don't make any sense in the history mm. that we've been, and a lot of stuff that was there that isn't there anymore, like like streetcars and there's a lot of mining up in there and there's a star fort at the very tip of it. So, I mean, there's just, it's, it's like a microcosm of everywhere else. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> So, so at this junction in time, you, you get this map and you're sort of, take us back to, to where you were before I interrupted. I apologize. Okay. You're, you're fine. And anytime, Mark, it's, it's totally fine. So this was, this was my gestation point, if you will, in 2016, I'd been preparing myself before this. I knew about alignments. I knew about sacred geometry. I had actually met a man in Oklahoma city who is a Moorish American I hadn't known anything about the Moors before meeting Osiris. And he that is a critical piece of information about who we're talking about building this. And when I say Moor, it's going back to Lemuria. It's M-U apostrophe U-R. And they were the original Masons. And so they're an important missing piece of this story, but it's, it's controversial because of the, the hatchet job that's been done <laughs> on history and to humanity in terms of understanding what was here before, who we are, and what's actually taken place here. But when I found this, what I call, what is a star tetrahedron in, in sacred geometry, it's also the shape of the human light body. It's the shape of the first light body and the universe's light body. So that's how our hologram, how we connect directly to that hologram and our energy bodies. But once I got this figure, I started extending the lines and I, I, I looked 
at all these places and I'm seeing the same kinds of things, same geographical shapes, canals, you know, architecture and so forth. And then, you know, I'm not really a proponent one way or the other of plane or planet. planet. I'm open. It's not what drives my work. I'm more concerned about how much disinformation we've been given. So we're not looking at the real problem (laughs) of who's behind this. And we're, you know, kind of breaking down into conflict over the earth being flatter or a sphere. That's not really my deal. I'm I'm open. I've encountered evidence that our perception of space and time has been tampered with, but it's not what drives my work. What drives my work is this original civilization. And I, so I switched to a globe so I could see the other side of this. My flat map is like in, in pieces on the floor. I could only get the line so far and I wanted to see what was on the other side. So I transferred the tetrahedron to a, a globe and then I extended the lines out in places and cities in alignment. And then I wrote down all of these places on spreadsheets. I've got 19 spreadsheets here. This was all, I did all this in 2016 for the most part. There may be one or two in here that I've done since then. And then I systematically started looking at all the places that I have listed here. And so these are my data points and I would have absolutely no reason to look at these places unless it was on my list. So that's how I ended up getting a tour of the world of places I had never even heard of before. But it it yielded a lot of information. And that's what the rest of my work is based on. You know, it was basically following these places in alignment, documenting what I found, which is what's in my blog and my, my videos, which is the same thing as my blog posts for the most part. Right. And, and from that data, I was able to extrapolate bigger picture information to show who was here before, what's taken place, how they did it. And yeah. when I say they, I mean, you know, the cabal, the Illuminati, the controllers, whatever name you want to call them. Right. Yeah. No, um, and I, I think, you know, this is part and parcel to what Tara and I have been doing exactly how you just laid it out. You know, you, you might not know uh, exactly what you're looking for, but it's clear that there is a significant pattern to some places. And what you found clearly, this ley line, people are building there, things are happening, these events are congregating on these uh, pathways, and it's worth looking at. So, wow, 19 spreadsheets. I'm very curious to to get into some of the anomalies that stood out the most when, when you look through there. But it brings to mind Court Lindahl's work with the uh, octagonal structures and how he's found, uh, I think it's the Tower of the Winds, and it's an octagonal structure think built by Constantine and and you can see with each uh, line of the octagon you know there's other buildings on the map even miles and miles away that connect to that line that's created on one of the octagonal sides I think humanity was highly advanced Mm -hmm. I think the civilization was integrated harmonious balanced I think the original civilization built all of that infrastructure and that the history of the earth was replaced by with the history of those that took over everything and claimed the legacy of this original civilization of builders. And, you know, so we've been taught a fabricated history 
but that you know we're, I mean, we're talking when we're talking about ley lines we're talking about electromagnetism we're talking about consciousness and it all somehow worked together it worked together as a free energy generating system that was worldwide and all the the architecture supported i think the original tribes of israel were these people but that's all been fragmented and you know hijacked and you know their the, the legacy was stolen and the identity was usurped so, you know so what we know as freemasons would be a lesser degree of the original masons and by that i mean even the original masons had 360 degrees and the freemasons have 33 and i think all the freemasons know how to do is reverse everything and either take credit for the buildings or use the same science to to control us right i right. think is what we're, what's been taking place yeah and so it's it's um the anomalies on the ley lines i, I mean i think there's a power there so if you're familiar with like devil's triangle and the idea of the vile vortices Mm -hmm. Ivan Sanders' work, and you've got like 12 places in the earth that have all of these weird things that happen. My speculation about that is the grid's out of control. So at one point, it would have been, it probably wasn't like that. <laughs> you know, it's probably yeah. places in the geometry because they're mapped out in a, right. in a grid, you know, where the, where it's like the, wackiness of what happened to the grid gets um, perpetuated or something like that would be my guess as to why those places have missing ships and people and strange things happening. Right, right. Bermuda Triangle coming to mind. And, and there's all these pockets of the, you know, remote places of certain continents where legends of, of strange beasts that don't even fit, you know, what we would maybe classify as run-of-the-mill cryptids now, you know, Sasquatch and, and Dogman and all these other ones that get, you know, a lot of notoriety. You go further and further out into unexplored territory and some of these uh, strange sightings get really wild wendigos you know this like shapeshifter that takes over your consciousness i mean it's really it brings to mind something interdimensional and yeah that might be a, a very well viable explanation that the the energy grid of our planet is out of whack which is then facilitating this you know unnatural exchange in some other dimension which Maybe, you know, going back to our antiquity further back than that, when these civilizations had it all figured out, maybe that was how they were in communication with benevolent entities and, and, and other groups of, of races. Is that your line of thinking as well? I don't think ancient aliens built everything. I think ancient humans did, but they had mm. a relationship with beneficial ETs. And I think negative ETs and other negative beings saw an opportunity here on this planet and, you know, where everything's in physicality. I mean, which I think it, it literally was the garden of Eden at one time, you know, everything was, you know, beautiful and, you know, people lived a long time and everything was really cool. 
And then I'm a proponent of the mud flood. I believe a cataclysm was, was created and that the beings behind it figured out a way to incarnate into what we know as the 13 families, you know, bloodline families, Illuminati, and they proceeded to take over everything, financial systems, economic systems, cultural, social, the Rockefellers were big time behind the American educational system and setting that up. Right. Now this is, I mean, it's, it's totally bringing to light so many things, especially with this new paradigm that's emerging of an electromagnetic electro universe, you know, this electricity first sort of idea, you know, it would make sense that we have a grid that the energy is primary flowing on and then dispersed, you know, we see water act in the same way, you know, it has this huge system and we have these like composite little pieces of understanding of these whole systems. And it seems like groups like the Rockefellers have taken our education system and compartmentalized things so much that we don't get that whole composite understanding of how these systems fit together. Right. And I think that grid system is universal, mm. you know, not only on earth, right. you know, as you go up in, you know, layers or dimensions, I think we have a grid system and I think they've been harvesting our energy. I think they took over the grid and that's what I'm seeing in my research. You know, once I started looking at all these places that were on my list and, and writing about it and I'm seeing the same themes emerge, you know, where they would go into a place with a star fort. And I found star forts on the alignments I was following. I wasn't looking for them when I started, but I started to notice so many of them. I started looking for them, usually more than one star fort in a given location. I think they functioned as some kind of battery or circuitry on the grid system. So they went in and they, you know, their goal was to take over this grid system take over us, take over the resources. And, and then they removed it from our, our memory banks. Mm. Now, so we don't know how powerful, powerful we are. You know, it's more like we've been wired to <laughs> co-create something that's not beneficial. Mm. Right, right. Hijacking the, you know, natural manifestation abilities of our collective consciousness. I, I'm totally, I mean, you might be aware Ross Ben talks a lot about this mm-hmm. in his work where he calls them necro-geomancers because they go and take sacred sites and, you know, I use the term demagnetize. I'm pretty sure he, he calls it that too. But yeah, demagnetize these sites that are having a positive vibration that's beneficial to organic life. And then they go and put a war monument on it or, or something that, you know, represents these gods that they worship go ahead well i think those monuments are actually were originally part of the grid and then they say oh well this was erected in 1902 as a Ah. monument for so now would would that be a a case where they go and take something that's like let's say it's like a more of a blank statue and they go and inscribe something that wasn't there before to give the appearance that it's newer than it is or would you say that maybe they're actually taking a structure and completely redesigning it chiseling it into a new shape i think they're taking a structure that was already in existence and maybe maybe chiseling a date on it 
Right. And then saying we erected this and maybe putting a few statues on it right. and saying this is our World War One memorial or World War Two or you know, Spanish American so War or Civil there, War. The foundation and, and then they go and put these little neat like Civil War characters on top and say, Oh, that's all it is. It was just this. Yeah. And just, you know, just start looking at memorials around the world and they're they're crazy. <laughs> they're crazy elaborate, right. you know. Well, I, I was in Indianapolis at, towards the beginning of this year, and right in the center of Indianapolis, they have the uh, Soldiers and Sailors Monument, and it was extremely elaborate. It was very large, but it did kind of have the feeling like there were parts that were added afterwards, and and even the symbolism of like a bear kind of being held by its arms behind its head. It was like very, I mean, I don't want to go too far into the cultural stuff, but it was like, you know, is Indianapolis of all places has this symbol of a bear being like constrained by the, the, you know, empire, so to speak. It was just very symbolic of what's happened to the native Americans. I'm going to show you a picture here in just a moment of something I just got from one of my viewers. It's just, a, just creepy, <laughs> but have you seen the, the Bushnell arch? in Hartford? No, but I'm sure, I mean, I've probably passed by it and, and yeah, just, just ignorantly not seen it. I don't so live near Hartford, but I've been there many times. So the next time you go there, it's the um, Bushnell Park. It's, it's there. It's located near the Capitol building mm. and take a look at the Capitol building with, right. with new eyes. But the, the arch there is called the Sol Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Arch. Mm. And like so many I'm going to go ahead and share my screen because please do. I, I want to show you this thing anyway. So Hartford. I've, I followed an alignment through this place up through here. So well, and, that's how I knew about it. And there, you know, there's a lot of interesting history behind that town. A lot of big insurance companies have their headquarters in Hartford. Well, the oldest newspaper in the United States is, is in Hartford. There's a lot of interesting things in Hartford for sure. Wow. Okay. Yes, this is very familiar. I've seen this before. I think I've even driven under it. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And what catches my attention with this is if you see how this building here, which is now an apartment building, mm. is perfectly framed by the arch. Yeah. And I've done a dedicated piece on how many times I've found that proportion mm. through or archways of a building in the background. Right. You know, it's like perfect. Like there's no way yeah. <laughs> that, that was random. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, very pre-planned. But that's what they, they do. They call these older structures you know, some kind of memorial, usually war memorial, but others as well. But I had not heard of this and I'm going to be putting it in my next blog post, but somebody said, check out the awakening and the awakening too. One's in Maryland and one is in Chesterfield, Missouri. It's the same, mm. same, I'm going to call it a sculpture, but it's very bizarre. Right. And it was created by one of the Johnson and Johnson Johnsons. So let's see. So I'm going to have to dig a little bit into this. <laughs> this is like brand new to me. Wow. Yeah, no, that's. There's two of these awakening wow. statues. So it's, for folks who are just same listening, thing. we're looking at a man who's, it says the caption or 
title says 72 foot giant escaped confinement in a large patch of mulch only to be reburied in the sandy shores of the Potomac river. So is that a, a fantastical story behind it? Or are they saying that that was just dug out of the Harbor? I'm confused now. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think there's, wow. I think they're saying that, but there could be truth in that yeah. because that's ten, tends to be what happens as they tell us something. I mean, and that, you know, just brings to mind, all of the, you know, stories of Nephilim being found under these mounds. And again, you know, with what we mentioned maybe before we started recording here, the Hammonasset ley line has hundreds and hundreds of stone mounds lined up with it. And that's just one example of a, a ley line. There's countless more famous ones. The, the Hammonasset is just particular interesting because i've crossed it so many times but yes wow so you've got this gigantic figure buried in the sand and and also i think humanity was much bigger Mm. than we are today so not just the nephilim but but people were considerably bigger and then you see these large stones by the river here you know we, we think of them as natural because we have given have not been given any other explanation but you know i think those are clues as well especially the larger ones with like straight edges, you know, they're trying to hide that there was an advanced civilization here. So, you know, that's the bottom line. I mean, there's megalithic stones all over North America. Right. Please folks look at the, the awakening sculpture. You can Google that yourself or just sign up for the Patreon and and watch this video with Michelle here, giving us a wonderful presentation. And this is another version of a very similar statue. This is in Mm -hmm. Chesterfield, Missouri now. And it looks like it's in the middle of a, like a public park or like a soccer field or something like a university campus. Yeah. I mean, there's one where you even see the grass that's cut in lines here, but what I and here's the the plaque for the person that created it, right. Jay Seward Johnson, um, who like I said is a Johnson related to the Johnson and Johnson people, but I mean just look at the agonized expression on the statue's face. So it's like what what is this? Yeah. And once you start looking at all the really creepy statues that are out there. I mean, to me, another one is at the entrance at the L.A. Coliseum. To bring up Philadelphia, very particular to Ross Ben, there's plenty of very strange statues right outside the Philadelphia Museum of Art. You know, there's like the, the lion being killed by this sort of Roman figure, and that's an alchemical symbol. But wow, okay, so we have headless figures. Looks like two men, but I it's a man wrong. and a woman. Wow. Okay. Well, the it's woman a, I is mean, very I think fit. Why have headless and feetless athletes? Wow. Yeah. At the entrance to a sports stadium. Yeah. And, and, and I was and very kind of pornographic. I will say in the classical style, but still very kind of explicit, not trying to uh, hide anything there when it comes to the lower regions, but wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's, yeah. That's another rabbit hole. Kind of like, the Hunger Games comes to mind with that, and like mm. the, they're pushing the agenda towards transhumanism. Oh well, yeah, you know I think that's what we're talking about. I mean, there's a non-human agenda here mm. at play, and because of the mind control and the programming and and the lies, and I mean the flat-out lies that people are told every day, for 
decades, a lot of people just don't understand the, I want to say the danger that, that we're in collectively. Now saying that I'm an optimist <laughs> and I don't think, you know, I don't think they're going to get away with it, but part of it is us waking up to, you know, to the, to an advanced civilization and advanced humanity, what that humanity was capable of the legacy, what we haven't been told about with regards to the ley lines, with regards to our own abilities and, you know, being turned into power sources, which, you know, I think is effectively what has taken place is they're, they're, you know, running on us. (laughs) Now, we can go back to star forts because that's something we've talked about briefly on the show before and it's really fa- really fascinating you mentioned over and over you would find them on the ley line are there any components to star fort that stick out anything that our audience can look for in their own hometowns or where they travel when they're looking for these sorts of architecture what stands out about star forts particularly Okay, I'll share my screen again in just a moment, but they're called by many different names. They're, they were, it looks like they were repurposed as military. I don't think they were originally, but that's what we know them as, military fortifications. Way. You see that often with a lot of <laughs> sacred sites and strange mystical places, the military comes in and puts a base there. I mean, over and over and over again, that's the case. They're called fortresses, they're called citadels, they're called castles. So there's a lot of, they're called a lot of things. And they're, the most common shape is like a four-pointed or a five-pointed star, but they are many different shapes and they, they have earthworks and so forth. So I got a little prepared. I wasn't sure what direction we were going to go in. So I pulled up a couple of different things here. So I decided that I was going to focus on star forts in one particular blog post. And that turned into a long one. And it's a long video of the ones that I do, but it was just something that I kept encountering. And for those of you who may or may not be familiar with this, this is the star of uh, the flower of life. And this is the pattern that all sacred geometry is, is based on. You find all those shapes within it, the platonic solids. And I'm not a mathematician. I do understand this intuitively. You know, the math part always kicked my butt. It was my, my worst subject in school. Me too. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I got enough of this. I understand enough of this to know that it's, it's really important understanding how we functioned prior to the hijack. So I started this particular article in um, Merida, Mexico, and Campeche is not too far from there. And I found two star forts there. And the first time I looked at Merida, I wasn't looking for star forts. So I actually went back and I found these two. And so there's one. So it's not exactly a star shape, but you see these points here. Those are pretty typical. And then the earthwork that's surrounding it is also a typical feature. And this is what it looks like closer up. So you see this massive masonry, you know, with, with what may or may not have been like a moat of some kind. Right. And then there's 
they come in pairs usually at least, and in many cases, at least one of them's not there anymore, but I was able to find a second one here in Campeche and that's this one. So, you know, a little bit of a different shape, but you still have that moat thing going on there. Wow. And you, you see it's turned into a museum in the first case. In the second case, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Very curious that these places get repurposed in that kind of way to really, it, it, it's like, yep, this is curious, huh? But it, they divert the curiosity into a different direction, it seems. Yeah. You know, so people in general tend not to even be aware, you know, that there's a discrepancy between the massive size of these buildings when they were said to have been built, you know, so this one was said to have been built by the Spanish in 1801, you know, and we're doing things like that in 1801, (laughs) you know, and we don't even have what we would consider modern equipment (laughs) and they're building that. Right. And, and, they're probably, this was a World Heritage Site, but it's also a museum. They turned that into a ships and weaponry museum. And then you also have the term Star City. So Campeche had these points here on their, their wall around the city that look like starport points. And I'll show you some other examples. You know, and again, a lot of these cases, like on Google Earth, you can see kind of the original shape of it, but in many cases, these points are, are gone. Bastions, they're called bastions or watchtowers. Or this, this particular one still has seven of them standing, but in a lot of cases, they're not standing anymore. And uh, they still have their city gates here. And this was sub- said to have been built in 1686. You know, and again, you have, <laughs> I was like, how'd they do that then? Key West has a number of, Starfort features, but they're called different things. So East Fort Martello is now an art museum and Fort Zachary Taylor, you're seeing kind of more of this, these shapes going on here. You've actually got the water in this one. They tell us things like it was built from New England granite. So how in the heck are they transporting (laughs) shiploads of granite from New England to Florida to like the Florida Keys? Interesting. And what in, time period in 1845? 1845. Hmm. So well, I, I will given. say there there was quite a bit of industrial activity in Connecticut in that time with with quarries and, and particularly on the river. So it's not totally far-fetched, but I, I do agree with the line of thinking like, you know, some of these. Now, are there any star forts that, you know, go towards the range of megalithic or are they all within the realms of sort of, you know, things that can be explained by, I would say, you know, like look at castles, for instance, we're not going to say that, that it's, it's common knowledge how to build these things. But when you're dealing with secret societies, they might have a, a set of information. I mean, Ed Lee Hanskill, the creator of Coral Castle, he was a, a Freemason. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think that the original builders, this this kind of stuff wasn't difficult. Mm-hmm. And there may have been some secrets that, that carried over. And I, I've gotten to the point where I question everything that we've been told. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where my skepticism at this point in time comes in, because I've, I've studied this stuff for 
you know, prior to my own research and now. So, you know, I've got a picture of, of a lot of the things that were told about how they, they came into existence. But it's just, there's things like these forts on, at Key West. You've got the two that I just talked about, Fort, so this is called East Fort Martello. This one's called Fort Zachary Taylor. And then on its own little island is Fort Jefferson, <laughs> which is wow. further west than Key West. Yeah. And it's said to be unfinished and the largest brick masonry structure in the United States with over 16 million bricks. And it was said to have been built between 1845 and 1861. Wow. You know, so again, it's just, you know, just questions if, yeah. you know, how they do it. Yeah, and you know, it's like if all of these resources were put towards this, I mean, what are they using it for now? It just seems like a little out of place, if you ask me. Yeah, and like, so this one is a national park and it's been preserved. And a number of these star forts ha that have been pre preserved are parks. A lot of them have been destroyed. A lot of them were destroyed in the Civil War. A lot of them were destroyed in World War One, World War Two, And then a lot of them were just left to sit in deteriorate you know they're they're in ruins so you know it seems like those were you know the the cover story that was given to explain how they how they're even there right and what kind of technology did we have between 1845 and 1861 that's going to produce you know something like that I mean, we're talking pre-civil yeah. <laughs> pre-civil yeah. war yeah um, wow it is. It's really. It's breathtakingly beautiful. It looks like a great vacation spot, but I mean, it does. It's like baffling, you know. Usually, things like this that are explained away by like slave labor, and it's that seems to be such a you know just a. It's just <laughs> crazy to have that kind of explanation for something this marvelous. Not that that was the explanation for this, but. In our case, looking at things in New England, I mean, we've come across some stone structures that are explained that way. And it's just, it's baffling. It's like, no way that, that a bunch of people being whipped at the back put this together. The stones are too huge to even be lifted in that way. And this is just the outside of the building. I mean, if you look at inside Fort Jefferson, and this example is repeated at Starfort after Starfort after Starfort. You know, it's just ex exquisite stonework <laughs> wow. and archways. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of looks like that old, going on uh, here. Ivory piano factory that we went to in Ivory Town. That's an interesting place. Ivoryton, Connecticut. I don't know if that's come up in your research, but a lot of strange buildings in that town. It was allegedly or it was a part of the, you know, ivory trade and making pianos in the colonial times. But when you pulled this picture up, it's like uncanny it kind of looks like the back of the building we were in a month ago i'll have to check that one out yeah you know and you see the you know the perfect proportion of the arches here as they right. line up and you know again i can find other examples of that no problem i mean these are incredible structures right i'll go along here this is following an alignment that's from merida up through florida to the bahamas and you know you've got this beak-shaped fort in Baham in the Bahamas. Oh. You've got 
these stone steps, I'll, I'll stop here in just a second. These 66 steps that were said to have been carved out of solid limestone between 1793 and 1794, which was the same time that this was said to have been built, you know, again, how? <laughs> yeah. Now, Go ahead. With that shape of the building, is there, you know, any alignments you found, anything that that's pointing to? I haven't looked, I haven't looked for that specifically. I do know there's like a number of, of Starfort buildings clustered around this part of Nassau in the Bahamas. Question? How do you think they got there then if it wasn't people? Oh, I think it was people. I think it was, it just wasn't the people that said they built it. Mm, Right. I think there were, you know, there there was a very advanced civilization Mm. that built everything on these grid lines and alignments. Oh, using energy. Right. And they were master builders. I think they had, they think they had abilities that we can't even imagine that if we, if we knew we had them ourselves, you know, we could access them. Yeah. Which might be where we're headed towards in the age of Aquarius now. (laughs) I I'm, I'm down with that. (laughs) Well, getting back to though, you know, I hear this date being mentioned, not just by yourself, but by other folks who talk about Tartaria. And similar time periods, 1717. And, you know, these buildings are a little bit after this time. That's when they're saying they're being built. But it seems like the 16th, 17th, 18th century, you know, even into the 19th and 20th century, you have a lot of these, you know, events that seem to not line up with the narrative that's being given for you know the evidence that's left behind and i you know i think that's exactly what's happening here you know you have these structures that are probably taken over in that free masonic way masonry that's just free right i love the way you said that they just kind of reverse things because in essence i mean they've done that you know in every town you can find a freemasonry hall And, you know, they're usually in charge of the local history and things like that and other, you know, little record keeping things. But it is curious. I wonder if the Smithsonian Institute or like the National Geographic Society has come up in your research at all as being behind some of these. uh... Undoubtedly, (laughs) I think the U.S. Patent Office was behind it, too. Mm. You know, it's all part of the cover up. I think the 19th century was the reset century. I think that was, you know, beginning around 1800 to around 1900 was when there were major changes being implemented. And that was when we got our new historical narrative. And Mm. I think there was a lot of really messed up adults and children on this. You know, if you've heard of the orphan trains and you know, there's all kinds of orphanages and asylums for, you know, adults, for the insane, for women, for right. children. <laughs> we just drove by and uh, there's actually a couple uh, notable abandoned insane asylums in our state. But we just drove by one yesterday in a town called Meriden, which is interesting, kind of reminds you of the word Meridian. Very, you know, interesting as it relates to this whole map making and ley line making. But can you elaborate on the the orphan train? Because I've heard it mentioned, but I haven't heard it mentioned in too much detail. And I know from a past interview that trains do have a strange and curious technological history and, and are sort of, you know, 
within this realm of possibly antiquity technology that was in this Tartarian civilization. Yeah, that's what I believe. Right. I believe all rail systems were put in by the original civilization. Because you, you just have the same issue with the story they tell us and the technology that we're told that we had at the time just don't match. Mm. And you know a lot of that happening between 1800 and 1850, if you start looking into it, same thing with canal buildings. You know, they're supposedly putting in all this infrastructure when we're like just a few years out of the Revolutionary War. And what are we taught to believe the life was like back then? Mm. (laughs) Agricultural and horses and, you know, not much going on technologically. You know, they, they gave us the Industrial Revolution to explain all that, but it still doesn't hold water when you really start looking into it Mm. and um the orphan train started in 1854 and lasted for about 75 years and it was started by the the children's aid association in new york city under the leadership of charles loring brace and what we're told about it is they had all of these orphans um the new york juvenile asylum and a number of other orphanages and places an explosion of children and that they wanted to experiment with this program and get them out to places that were developing and so they started this program where they would put children on these trains and you know the bottom line is they were being shipped off to goodness knows where right you know, the idea is they were going into good families that who need, who would take care of them, but that wasn't necessarily, they would have been lucky, I think, if that's what had taken place. Well, and especially in the time of like these plantation, corporation, you know, town, company town type situations, it would make sense that they would get funneled into these, you know, projects and, and who's behind a lot of these projects, globalists, right. people have who have connections to the bloodlines in Europe. I mean, Ross Ben, who we mentioned earlier, he's done a lot of great work to show how they, you know, planned uh, a lot of what they were going to do here in the United States ahead of time. And they were well aware of the situation here in some ways. And, you know, it makes, you know, a lot of sense when you actually see some of the tunnels and the way that they're carved into the mountains that these were not built by the technology we have. I mean, the train system in the United States is very baffling. Like even some of the highway tunnels that we have, I mean, it's just amazing what, what we can do, you know, to, you know, seemingly huge structures of rocks and we're just boring through and creating these magnificent looking tunnels through them. Right. And I've seen a lot of stories about the building of, you know, train tunnels and canal tunnels and, Again, it's just like you know, labor-intensive things. And Pawpaw Tunnel in West Virginia was part of the CNO Canal, and it was supposed to have nearly bankrupted the the canal builders. Mm-hmm. And by the time it was opened in 1850, it was already supposedly made obsolete by the railroad that was being built at the same time, and it never really got used. I mean, that's just those are the kinds of stories that they tell us about it. 
And uh, there was something you mentioned, and I'm not sure if I can bring it back, but it was a good point. Oh, so with regards to the orphan trains, one of the names that popped out when I was looking into that with Charles Loring Brace is one of his supporters was Mary Astor. Mm. And she was the wife of John Jacob Astor. Right. Third or fourth, you know, whatever one, (laughs) second, third, fourth. And so there was a connection there. You know, it, it, it looks like it could have been early child trafficking to me. Yeah. I mean, it would not surprise me. I mean, if you look into orphan trains and, you know, they would have like a, a sign plastered up in town saying, you know, there's going to be kids here at the theater. <laughs> they would line them up and, and people would come and pick them out, I guess. And then sometimes they would place orders for specific kinds of kids. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's countless novels and, and movies even that were made with this kind of trope of a story where, you know, a kid, you know, gets left from his original family, adopted to some mean, rich family, and then has to, like, find his original family, you know, hopefully for better or worse. But, yeah, that is a very interesting point. I mean, when it comes to resetting a, a particular area, You can't send a bunch of discerning adults, send a bunch of kids who aren't going to question who built these big structures. And then you have the first generation in the place with a kind of pre-programmed narrative. And then you completely alter the history of a place. I mean, it seems like a very, very smart strategy to me from their perspective of trying to control what we perceive as history. And the same thing with immigrants. I mean, were they building the infrastructure or were they digging it out? And I land on the side, they were digging it out and, and making it serviceable and not necessarily building it. But in our historical narrative, they came over here from Europe and there was a lot of, in China, and there was a lot of up, upset and disruption going on in those places because of revolutions and civil wars and things like that around that same time between like 1845, 1855 was a huge influx and from Germany as well. But typically, the, the German immigrants landed in a better situation than the Irish immigrants and the Chinese immigrants and the Italian immigrants, which came a little bit later on. So the last three groups got the lower end jobs, menial labor, whatever they could find, <laughs> pay rent. And the, the German immigrants that came between 45 and 55 tended to get the, you know, the more middle class kind of jobs. And again, that's what you find when you look at the historical record. But what I tend to what I tend to think is that whatever was going on there was was all part of the reset and that those immigrants that settled in different places, you know, talk more of an adult group, they were there to actually make the infrastructure serviceable from what I believe was a deliberately caused cataclysm that somehow they were able to liquefy earth you know around the world so it wasn't just in one location and and cause this you know flood of mud that just kind of wiped out this surface population at the time there's a lot of underground infrastructure so people could have survived underground both original people and controllers while the controllers got busy digging out enough of the the surface to be able to repopulate the earth again so I think that's what was going on in the 
those hundred year period to one to 200 year period around 1717. So you have a bunch of different explanations for how this mud flood was provoked. I mean, what's the best explanation you've come across? I mean, I've heard meteors, I've heard electromagnetic, I've even heard like Tesla technology. What, what? I think whatever it was, it was man-made. I do not believe it was natural or space weather. It could have been directed space weather, but I don't think we would be sitting here today if it had been a true extinction level event. There wouldn't have been anybody to come in and reboot civilization the way they wanted to. So they, they did it. It could have been you know, some kind of frequency weapon. It could have been a directed energy weapon. It could have been a nuclear weapon. It could have been, you know, something that, I mean, I know liquefaction occurs with earthquakes at a certain magnitude. So like when the tsunami that hit Japan in 2011 Mm. and caused the Fukushima situation, there was liquefaction going on at that time, at that level of earthquake. So that's what we're talking about, something that can cause that, but the earth's surface can in fact liquefy and just turn into mud. <laughs> There's, you can find YouTube videos about that now. Right. Yeah, and, no, I, I, I mean, you can even see in some countries mud, mud, what do they call I mean, they don't call them mud floods. I don't think they call them like, now I'm forgetting the term for it, but either way, it, it's definitely strange. Ari Asselin, past guest on the show, his explanation was people on Mars as the directive force using some sort of direct energy weapon to cause this event to happen. And I think it fits in with the electromagnetic universe model, you know, but yeah, it's, it's stunning, you know, I just know something happened Yeah, and I came up with the 1717 because I, I, I felt like there was a connection between 1492 and 1942. Mm. And I had some, I was doing some work and had some encounters with some people during the time. This was around 20, I want to say it was 2018. I, well, actually I started blogging and making videos in 2018. So this was like the fall of the following year, 2019. That kind of validated that idea that there was a time loop a negative time loop that was created between those years and 1717 is right in the center of it. Mm. And there's 225 years on either side of it. Wow. And 1717 was also the year that the uh, premier grand lodge of London was founded. There's some other anomalous. I mean, there's a lot of anomalous events when I started looking at the history from that point forward, you know, weird stuff surfacing. And then, you know, I was able to track back to 1492 and find some other, things that contributed to the world that we live in today. Papal bull, papal bulls, you know, directives from the Pope creating the Dominicans who were then responsible for the inquisition and, you know, you know, basically killing people for not adhering to the dogma that was being promoted and others as well. The Interest of ter- well, the interest of terrible was around 1493, but that authorized the land grab of the, what we know as the new world. But these lands were all inhabited originally, but it was like that time period was laying the groundwork. And then I've come to see what I think 
moving forward, 1717 is like possibly the year that that history started again. And then the 1800s was when they were, they had enough to work with that they could start repopulating the earth and restarting civilization. And then before 1717, I've just found some really anomalous stuff when I look back at the historical record, like explore Prince Henry, the navigator, and then, you know, Hudson, <laughs> you know, the people that were said to have explored and founded these things, you know, that they, there's, they're given these dates for a living. And then somebody didn't write a biography about them until the 19th century. And so I've really come to question whether those people even existed, <laughs> essentially, mm. and that we were just taught that they did exist. Right. And this is how our, how we got the history that we have. There's a lot of activity going on in the 19th century. Yeah. Now, I wonder where, you know, indigenous Americans fit into this because, you know, there is a lot of evidence for their presence here going back thousands of years. I wonder if there's any stories that they have or any, you know, thing you found that connects them into the picture. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think the indigenous peoples built everything that was here. Mm. I don't think it was what we were told. Right. And, but, but their history has been fragmented and, you know, misappropriated. And, Mm. you know, I think it was very, very different. And that when the European colonizers came in, not just in North America, South America and around the world, but they, they kicked these, you know, originally advanced people back into the hunter gatherer state so to speak. And I think the, the wisdom keepers and elders know the truth. The Moors that I personally know, know the truth about who was here and what's taken place here. But if you look at native Americans in general, and, you know, we have very strong pictures in our minds about, you know, buckskins and headdresses and drums and rain dances and all this stuff. You know, if your life, if you've been exterminated literally by a system that doesn't want you to exist and you're not rewarded, but in fact penalized for speaking the truth, what are you going to (laughs) do? You know, are you going to go along with the program and the script and, and then you're raised to believe this is, this is how it's always been, or are you going to speak out? Because the ones that speak out tend to get penalized in some way or another. Right. So, yeah, I think there was a very advanced civilization. I think, you know, again, I, I said earlier, I think we're talking about the tribes of Israel and worldwide, and that that identity got taken and given to the <laughs> given to the people that are, you know. And you know what? It's so curious because over and over again, these script inscriptions that you know whoever finds them they'll identify it as looking hebrew they got you know laughed away as hoaxes but you find evidence for this sort of possibility in a lot of places especially across the eastern united states even down to a tribe in i think it's west virginia where you know according to them they've been there pre-columbus but they have very clear, you know, what we would see as, you know, 
Middle Eastern or Anglo looking features. And they say, yeah, we came over here, you know, a couple thousand years ago by boat and our, you know, ancestors are Israelites. Maybe that's, again, a hoax, but even on our home state, somewhere we've both been, the Pinnacle Rock in Washington, or, or maybe it's uh, Warm near Lake Warmog. So what's that? That's uh, Bantam, I think. Yeah, doesn't matter. Either way, that part of the state, there's a mountain. And in the 1800s, a man found Hebrew inscriptions on this stone at the top of this mountain. And, you know, people will say, oh, that's just a hoax. But it brings some light to what you're saying about the 12 tribes of, of Israel, for sure. I mean, when I first started researching, I, I would find the 12 tribes, people that identified as the 12 tribes in India, in Madagascar, in Pakistan, mm. Afghanistan. And I've done some more research into that. And I think, I think that was part of this, how this civilization was laid out. You know, so I've talked about sacred geometry and the flower of life. And I think communities were set up the same way right and each tribe occupied a <laughs> a different spot on right. the circle like the zodiac 12 signs exactly wow. and that 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 was a pattern that was repeated around the world and you know and you get even more confusing when you throw in the you know the egyptian relics that are here mm -hmm. and you know i think it all goes back to the same civilization yeah. and what we've been told we, everything's just been you know, separated and made into something different, like we were talking about with the sciences earlier. So we wouldn't know. And, you know, there's just so much repair work that needs to be done within humanity itself because of all the lies that we've been told that have caused us to hurt each other, distrust each other, kill each other. And that's not, I mean, to me, that's not humanity. That's not who we are. We're taught that we're that way. But I don't think humans are, are evil. I think humans are good. Right. And we've been manipulated to, to do the dirty work of the, the guys that need that for their energy source. Mm. Yeah. Now, at the beginning, you mentioned a they, Illuminati, you know, have you gone any further into identifying maybe uh, a name for the, the they? Because, I mean, Archons comes up a lot. Archons Anunnaki is good. comes up a lot. Anunnaki you know, good. Yeah, Reptilian. we're just going with it's like <laughs> it's somebody. It's got to be one of them. Fallen angels. <laughs> right. <laughs> you think it's similar names for the same phenomena and that's really what it is or different, you know, you know, cultural variations of the same thing. I think it all comes from the, from an unholy alliance mm. of these negative beings that, like I said earlier, saw an opportunity to come in because right. it's how easy it is to separate us in physical form from source and from each other. So, you know, sever our connection with the creator, you know, fill our heads with this different information. We don't know we're all connected. We don't know how you know how powerful we are and they I, I think fallen angels are involved i mean i think it's like a vendetta against humanity and against the creator and creation Do and it's crazy it comes down to like one one unholy alliance that can be named the i think the names that you gave the 
the Anunnaki, the Archons, the Reptilians. I think fallen angels in, are in there. I don't know if you've heard of the Chimera before. You know, I think there's layers of darkness that have been involved in this. And and part of our problem is we're not only dealing with physical beings that have incarnated into human form that do things that are not human to people, you know, that gets into the child trafficking and the things associated with that and worse. But there's, we're also dealing with non-physical darkness. And that's where it gets really weird because we don't know, <laughs> you know, we're taught to believe that kind of thing doesn't exist. Yet we, most people experience it every day with, within their own psyche, you know? Right. That's where shadow so our, and all that comes in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So our challenge has been, you know, two-pronged, you know, there's this you know, we've been set up by these beings that up until I think the internet age held all the cards because they can controlled everything. But once the internet came into general use, what they planned to control people with turned into a way we could communicate and, you know, learn information. I mean, I would not have gotten where I've gotten with this information without it. I wouldn't be able to have these conversations with peers like yourself that are asking questions, <laughs> you know, True. things that you've noticed. So, so it's part of, you know, they've lost control of the narrative and, you know, once you let the cat out of the bag, it's hard to put back in. And, you know, right now we're, we just happen to be living in a time where if people are awake enough and have eyes to see, they can see something's going on and something's wrong. Right. Right. So that begs the question, you know, Michelle, looking into all this stuff, it can be pretty heavy. I've heard from other researchers and I myself have, you know, turned away from researching figures like Alistair Crowley when I've learned enough because it's like, yeah, this is not productive. So are there any, you know, things you practice in your daily life or any rituals you do to, to connect with these energies in a way that's benevolent or you find, you know, that this research serves you ultimately on that spiritual level? I mean, I, I equate it with my being my spiritual path, mm. <laughs> you know, that right. I started noticing things when I was a kid. And I wasn't born into knowing any of this. Mm. I mean, my, at least you have your, my family thinks I'm crazy in your name. I haven't even talked to my family about what I do. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> they would think I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, you answered that question for us. That was going to be one of our questions. So your oh, family, no. they might think you're crazy <laughs> if they only knew. <laughs> <laughs> like they would not. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Not even close. So I wasn't born into any of this. This is just stuff that I, I had to wake up to in my own, in the course of living my life. And, you know, I just had the good fortune to experience everything I needed to start to be able to receive it and put it together. So as far as, okay, I think I lost my train of thought on that. No. Well, and, and as far as, oh, so, so, but I don't, life. You know, I other than I have to get up like early <laughs> if I'm going to be writing, researching, I have to start early in the day because by mid-afternoon I'm my my brain's just mush usually. <laughs> I can do stuff like this, but I, I I just can't write. I do, you know, clear with sage and you know, some some kind of smudging. 
and I, I do meditate, but mostly it's just been information that's come my, my way. And Peter Moon is an author who has done a lot of work about on the Philadelphia experiment and the Montauk yeah. project. He talks a lot about the Moors and he also talks about Alistair Crowley. Mm. So when I started reading his material about 2014, somewhere in there, this before I started waking up to what I'm doing now, I got, I got freaked out when he was talking about, about that, but I do think Crowley is a, a figure in this. Mm. I think he's part of it. I think John D is too. Right. But I definitely think Crowley had something to do with it. Do you think the queen has something to do? Absolutely. With Can you elaborate on that? Because she <laughs> just bought a book on the queen and it's definitely something we're interested in. <laughs> you know, he I, practiced Elizabethan magic, right? So the queen Elizabeth. Yeah. He, he, John D was her advisor and he got into some occult practices with another man named Edward Kelly and they were using spraying mirrors and all this kind of stuff. And I think they brought in a whole bunch of bad elements <laughs> from the depths into this dimension. And that's something Peter Moon talks about. And I've, I've seen it referenced in other places. I think they brought in fallen angels. Um, that's where Enochian, the, the language, the magical language right. that they use. I mean, I know enough to know it exists. And that's, you know, a big problem came into England, but it also came in through Germany. Mm. And the two are connected. Right. I mean, Victoria and Albert were first cousins of the same lineage out of Germany. And so my work has gone into speculating that somehow the Philadelphia experiment was connected to the great frost of Ireland, which took place in 1740, 1741, that possibly it went back in time, created a rip in space time, caused the great frost. And then Rothschild was born in 40, 1744. Adam Weishaupt was born in 1748. And the, the founder of the, what became the British Royal families was born in 1750 in Germany. And I, you know, I've got, I, I've got something that I've written that I can send you. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. <laughs> I really go into depth on that. Yeah. Now, now that person who started the Royal family, who, do you remember their name by it's chance? Duke Saulfeld. I mean, I'm sorry, Duke Francis of Saxe Coburg Saulfeld. Wow. And yeah. the, the British Royal family was called yeah. It was the House of Saxe Coburg and Gotha until nineteen seventeen and they changed the name. Yeah, they they Ross Ben again, I've been mentioning him so much. We met Ross in Philadelphia. He's such a, a brilliant guy, but he wrote about this family and their connections to the Huska castle in what was Prussia, I believe. Now it's in Hungaria, I think I could be very wrong there, but it's like this, you know, of allegedly the house of Pindar, you know, and that's connected to the Saxe-Coburg family. It's that, all that connected. Castle. It's all connected. Wow. The Pindar has something to do with the, the, <laughs> the dragon. We, the we dragon. Know, yeah. I mean, it has something to do with the, the Rothschilds with one of their names. They call themselves the, the mm. head got the head one. Right. You know, and, th and they're doing all kinds of bad things to humans. 
um, you know, they, anyway, (laughs) I could go into it a little bit, but I don't really want to. Yeah. No, well, um, and does does Queen Elizabeth play a larger role than we've been led to believe in in all this? Because she does bear the name Elizabethan magic. I, I'm sure they all I'm sure the royals all mm, do. Yeah, I'm sure they do. You know, and I don't know if you've heard the story of the the missing Canadian children, the First Nations children, mm. you know, that were at boarding schools. Right. And then, you know, finding the bones of the kids and right. yeah. I mean, there's just all kinds of stories around that. If you follow alternative media, yeah. it's not going to be in mainstream. And since it's not in the mainstream, you kind of have to look for other places for that information that t- start to tie things together because, you know, they've essentially made themselves the op- objects of worship and veneration in this, in our culture, the ones that are behind you know, the genocide of humanity are the ones that we worship. Right. So you've got the royalty, you've got, you know, the Pope, (laughs) you know, you've got others, you know, famous people that are involved in this, you know? Yeah. Now, was there any express knowledge on the part of John D when it comes to ley lines or any of this, uh, ancient technology that we're looking into with Tartaria? Have you found any explicit connections there? In reading like Peter Moon's book, I think he had an extensive library on Atlantis, probably the most extensive one of his day, who's considered one of the most learned men of his. I have, you know, I have no doubt that, you know, whatever is behind this had full knowledge of these ley lines, Mm. because like I said earlier, they seem to, do their colonization and attacks based on where places were located. And, you know, undoubtedly some places are more powerful than others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, court Lindahl likens it. I think he put it like this, like the Templars create the template of the temples so that they can have temporal control over the earth. And, you know, that word temp, you know, seems to be very significant temple you know, being the house of the spirit, you know, and, and what's between, what do we have here? We have our temples and what's in the middle in our pineal gland and our thalamus. Right. And, you know, I, you know, I think the bottom line that I, I like to tell people, you know, is first of all, what I say, you know, take what resonates and you can go outside your front door and start just looking at your community with new eyes, older buildings, especially, but parks and, you know, look at the possibility of rivers actually being canals, because I think it, there was a, a massive canal system that we've been taught, uh, taught to believe is natural. Mm. And, you know, masonry banks, things like that. Right. And then just don't blindly accept everything that you're told because that's what they depend on. Right. You know, they get yeah. into gaslighting and, you know, <laughs> using lies, but they have to tell more and more lies to keep covering up their lies. <laughs> so Indeed. They've dug themselves in so deep that, you know, people are, I think people are starting to wake up more and see that. Yeah. Yeah. Coming back to something we brought up initially with the age of Aquarius, what do you see 
you know, the future looking like? Do you think more and more people are going to get behind this information that folks like yourself are bravely uncovering? I, I think people are going to keep waking up. I don't think we're in this by ourselves. I think we have the help of benevolent beings, our guides, angels, God, and I do think we're living in amazing times. And I, I also think more light is coming onto the earth and that I'm hoping in the near future, the situation is going to break through more to the public to where the public can actually see what's been going on. That's one of the things I've been hoping for for a long time, but I think we're getting closer and closer to that time when things that are going on behind the scenes to hold these these criminals accountable, it's going to become more and more public knowledge. It's already in alternative media. And so it just, because they have such control over the mainstream, I think there's a lot of people are compromised and they're trying to keep the system, you know, keep the system propped up (laughs) so they don't get caught. You know, at some point they're just not going to be able to keep doing that. And I think people are going to start to be held accountable. And I think a lot of been works, work has been done in that direction in the last couple of years. And they're just waiting for the right moment for whatever's going to take place. But yeah. I, don't, I don't think they're going to get away with what they've done. I just, I just can't believe that. I'm with you. I couldn't agree more. I love the optimism. And I think that's a, a great place to, to leave it for now, Michelle, until next time. But please tell folks where... They can find your blog and, and is there anything new that's going to be coming out uh, that we can look forward to? Maybe a book or, or something that you have planned for the, the future? Actually, I have one. My blog is piercingtheveilevolution.com and my YouTube channel, if you just type in Michelle Gibson and Moore's M-O-O-R-S afterwards, it comes right up. I have an ebook published now and I'm going to have a second ebook up soon. And at some point, hopefully we'll get some paperback copies out. It's Beautiful. a little bit more expensive to do that. <laughs> right. Ebooks are easy. And then I'm on a new platform called unguruyourlife.com. Unguru is U-N-G-U-R-U. And it launches on the 15th of October. And I'm going to be, I'll have special content for that, special interviews, social media consults and things like that. This should so, be out by by then if you want to give folks a, is, do they just search on Guru? How would they find that? Yeah, you can search well and Unguru your life, but I'll send you some links if cool. you'd like yeah, to we'll have put them the, to put in the description. Yeah, that'd be great because this I believe this will be out that same week. So folks can go directly from here to there and follow up with you, Michelle. But this has been fascinating, definitely cleared some things up on my end uh, as far as understanding goes and and gave me a better picture of, of what we're looking at. Yeah, I have much greater clarity now <laughs> onto everything that's going on yeah. at every level. And, and we want to you know keep you informed on what we find out about the Hammond Asset Ley Line. Who knows, maybe it'll uh, play into what you're researching. So yeah, we'll be in touch, Michelle. This is a lot of fun. Very good. I'm going to send you another link to Peter Shampoo's work. Um, mm. He's got a website called Geometry of Place, and he's done a lot of work on ley lines in North America. That would be so wonderful. He might you. have yeah. some information there that will help you. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, a reluctant uh, 
speaker. <laughs> I've always been more comfortable writing and I'm kind of a quiet person in my personal life. But I realized when I got started to get this information and really understand it, that I had a responsibility and I needed to get out and, you know, speak and do these kinds of things. And it's such a big topic that, you know, I realized there's a lot of information there's a lot of new things to, to grasp, but, you know, just question what you're told about everything because there's something really off here Mm. (laughs) and there's a reason for it. And you're not crazy. <laughs> thank you. No matter yes. what your family thinks. Yes. Thank you so much. You're not Michelle. Crazy. Thank you so much. And yeah, I think you, you did more than wonderful today. So you certainly gotten much better. And I myself used to be a very quiet person too. And, you know, kind of stepped out of my shell over many years, but that's a story for a different podcast. Yeah. Michelle, Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. That was another episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Don't miss out. Sign up on patreon.com slash MFDIC. Peace.